And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. New VanCast to start the week on a game day for the Vancouver Canucks and Drants, where I feel like we need to cue the Jaws music. You know, the ominous with the shark in the water. Because uh, Tyler Tafoli is back in town. Right, yeah. Exactly. He has 15 goals, J-Pat. 15 goals. Tyler Toffoli has 15 goals, man. Holy cow. I know, he warmed up over the weekend because he knew he was facing the Canucks here for a couple of games. Oh my goodness. Holy cow. 15, what would we be saying about Tyler Toffoli if he had 15 (laughs) goals for the Canucks? Like, I don't even want to, I feel like we'd have a statue half chiseled. Like, 15 goals in 23 games. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Anyway, right, and the bulk of negativity on- start to this podcast. No, 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 <laughs> it's good fun, and it's such a storyline. And and but look, the Canucks are up in the challenge because they held Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner in check, not once but twice. Like those guys didn't do anything. The mighty blue and white brought low on Canada's west coast. You know what? You love to see it. It was great. No matter theater. what, was, you love to yeah, see absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. No, like and and. When you think back to the start of February, when they saw the Leafs and the Leafs just literally skated through them, when you think of Austin Matthews and Jalen Chatfield, you know, the Canucks, we, we did the podcast on Friday after Jim Benning's address, and the dust has sort of settled on that, although uh, it was weird. It was weird that Hockey Night in Canada did not mention it at all, wasn't it? Like, I, I didn't lose sleep over that, well, but I saw they a lot had, of... They, they had to cover the Sabres. <laughs> Zoom with Kevin Adams, right. which, by the way, I wonder if that was in reaction to Jim Benning doing it. Was there enough time for him to react to Jim? Ben- like, I, I don't know the actual timeline. I was so focused. Uh, on- I mean, it would they would have given three and a half hours, basically. But, it, you know, all I know is that I saw John Vogel and Tim Graham and all our athletic colleagues and Mike Harrington, all our athletic colleagues in Vancouver retweeted my, you know, Jim Benning. Con- kudos to Jim Benning for facing the music. Right. I tweeted that. I got a lot of blowback. People being like, you're so soft on management. Um, that obviously came a few hours before I dropped the column in the podcast and then, you know, a couple hours later, the Sabres have a Zoom. I'm not sure that Vancouver's expansion cousins reacted directly to what happened in Vancouver, but I'm not convinced that it wasn't a reaction either. I guess I should just text Sabres PR and ask, but I haven't done that. I just wonder. It just made me think. I just thought it was really weird. And we'll get to the game because Saturday was a good night for the Vancouver Canucks. It was. And they're best players and they're at the midway mark now. So we've got lots to chew on here on a game day podcast. But I thought it was really weird that there was like not a mention of Jim Benning and the fallout to his Friday availability. But Jake Vertanen was put in the spotlight on the Hockey Night in Canada pregame show. And they went in depth on his Thursday night two-goal effort against the Leafs. And then... Like Daryl Sutter was on the pregame show for Hockey Night, and Brad Tree Living was on in one of the intermissions of the later game. Like they doubled down on the Flames, and there was again not a mention of all that had gone on in this market when they were showing the Canucks against the Leafs. So I thought that was strange, but that was their decision. Uh, the game was the star of the show, and look, full credit to the Canucks uh, again. I didn't like their chances when they were down going to the third period because they haven't shown inability all season long to sort of muster uh, the fortitude necessary to come all the way back in a hockey game and to do it without Elias Pettersson. Uh, but the, the best players rose to the challenge. And Brock Besser, that was one of his best games of the season. JT Miller looked like last year's JT Miller. I, Tom, I just thought last, like, if you had a checklist, the win on Saturday really was so much a carbon copy of so many of their victories a year ago, right? Best players, power play was a difference maker. 
And through it all, there was elite-level goaltending, and Thatcher Demko has now emerged as, I think, a second-half MVP candidate for the Vancouver Canucks. You know, if we're giving out midterm MVPs, I think Brock Besser's your guy, but uh, Thatcher Demko has shown here of late that, you know, if he plays like he has over the second half, he could follow in the footsteps of Jacob Markstrom and make it three straight years where a goalie is this team's MVP. He's been really good. It just felt like the Maple Leafs had to work so hard to get a goal on him. You know what I mean? Like there was going to be no loose change. And one thing the Maple Leafs did really well, like one reason I was surprised that the Canucks managed to come out with four points is that the Maple Leafs do this like high exchange where a winger comes high and they get a ton of motion going. It surprises teams. And I think it surprises teams in part because the Maple Leafs have skill to execute this in-zone set that most teams don't even attempt. And every time they were going to it, there was a scoring chance, like almost every time, but there just weren't any bad rebounds. There were no loose change, no loose. There was no loose change. There were no soft goals. Like it felt like they had to work so hard. Even that John Tavares goal that people were like, oh, Demko soft. It's like, man, that was an incredible goal. That was an incredible shot. Like as perfect a half clap, um, you know, I saw that Harmon Dial perfectly described it as a tribute to Thomas Vanek to hold Tommy Gunn. And that's dead on. Like it was an incredible shot. The angle changed enormously on it. And you got to give you got to give Demko a ton of credit because he has stabilized things. And I don't think there's any question now about who is Vancouver's number one. By the way, I, I did pour in just out of curiosity into Vancouver and their performance when trailing. Yes. Um, over the course of this season, uh, just like just a little bit. And it is stunning. Like the Toronto game helped a little bit, but they've spent a lot of time trailing this season, like 18, over 18 minutes a game on average trailing. And the fact is, is that the problem, it seems to me, is not so much their offense. Like they're not generating enough, but the problem really is that when they trail, they seem to surrender a lot. You know what I mean? Like they've surrendered 33 and a half shots against per hour in situations where they're tra- uh, trailing, uh, given up over three goals per hour. And while they, you know, aren't like bottom of the league, it's not like they're not generating anything in, you know, offensively when they're trailing, like by a mile, they're giving up the most, like 2.72 expected goals against per, per hour. No one else is within... Um, you know, the next closest team is 2.47, which is the LA Kings, right? Like that's a huge gulf because everyone else is like 2.4, 2.38, 2.31. Like those are the next top five worst teams. And none of them are like within a quarter of an expected goal uh, of the Canucks per hour. So, you know, I kind of wonder if there's something going on here where when the Canucks are trailing and they reel up to throw their fastball they're actually leaving themselves exposed meaningfully in terms of what they're giving up so the issue when they're trailing isn't so much that they're not getting the goal to tie it it's that teams are extending leads against them because when they gear up to chase a game um, that's when things start to go wrong for them offensively or sorry defensively um, even to a greater extent than they normally do and so that's sort of it was just an interesting thing that I wanted to look into but when you isolate their performance when trailing Part of the reason or the major reason that they haven't been able to come back isn't that they're not getting goals or generating offense or it's not on their star players um, so much as it's on the team's defensive structure. They just become the most permissive team in hockey for some reason when you get a lead on them. And and I think that's an interesting sort of thing to note. And I, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I think last Tuesday in Winnipeg was a perfect example of that. JT Miller scores late in the second period. Now it's a 3-2 game. You got 20 minutes to get the equalizer and then try to get in front. And remember the fire drill... And instead of the Canucks having a chance to tie it at three, the Jets make it four to two. And I think there have been a number of examples of that throughout the season. I still think that it's just a statistical anomaly, though, that they haven't. Like That game on Saturday was the first time all season. They, they The midway mark, 28 games in, it was the first time that they've overcome a deficit and played with a lead in the same game. They overcame a late deficit against Montreal the last time the Habs were here in that crazy game that went back and forth and ultimately was decided in a shootout. But the Canucks tied that game late, didn't play with the lead, and then won the game in the skills competition. The game on Saturday was the first time this year at any point that the Canucks had been down that they had gone back in front. And so 
Uh, you know, it's just it's the kind of thing that probably should have happened. But you're right. I think that you sort of point that out, that it's not necessarily that they weren't able to get the next goal that they needed. They kept giving up uh, the goal that they couldn't afford to give up. And that didn't happen on Saturday because uh, the Canucks got a bounce. Let's, let's be honest. The Canucks got a break. I mean, Willie Nylander makes well, that play off the glass and that's out. That's a dumb play. But he makes the Is play the successfully glass? 99 times out of 100. He gets the puck to the neutral zone without yes, putting it sure. in the stands. Like, And if he takes two more steps, he's you know out into the neutral zone and it's not a penalty, even if it leaves the playing surface. So it was a good break for the Canucks. And then they took advantage of it and tied the game. And then we know that they got the go-ahead goal moments later. Can we take a sec, though, Tom, and go back to the opening goal of the game and just, like, I got so much time for the way the Canucks opened the scoring on Saturday on the power play. Hughes, the quick up to Horvat, And you've heard me talking about Bo Horvat and these lack of assists. That's my example right there. It's just, it's strange that there hasn't been a few more plays along the way where Bo Horvat has just dished a puck to somebody who then has made something happen and he's picked up a second assist. But he was instrumental. Like, that's a hell of a play in the neutral zone. You know, we're so used to Quinn Hughes with open ice skating the puck up ice himself. But for whatever reason, uh, the quick up, Horvat dishes on the back end to Miller in full flight. And there's Besser coming in back door. Like, I just, I have so much time yeah, great for that goal. Too. Yeah, like, it's you know, it's not going to be, it's not going to be available to them every game. I recognize that. But the fact that it was there, I, I just thought it was a really cool goal. I agree with you. It was a lovely goal. And can we frame it for anyone who ever derides the drop pass? Can we just like frame that sequence and just like anytime anyone ever uh, criticizes the Canucks for doing a strategy that is ubiquitous across the NHL and was pioneered by their uh, power play coach, Newell Brown, anytime anyone criticizes that, I feel like there should be a bot. Like I should set up a bot who just tweets that goal at people. Like this is why, <laughs> this is why you do it. It's amazing. Um, yeah. And, and look, there was a lot to like about the Canucks' performance against the Leafs. One thing they did well too. I think, and and you know, I'm curious to know your thoughts on this, but I like the look of the bottom six with Michaelis and Howard Luck in it. I think they look fast, like not not Tyler Mott fast, but you throw Tyler Mott in there, and you have Jace Howard Luck, and you have Michaelis, and you have Godet on the other wing. Like I think you meaning like team speed is a really fragile thing, right? And you'll see this occasionally when a team signs like two big bodies and puts them in their bottom six, and it kind of changes how they can play. Or, or has too many stay-at-home defensemen like the Ottawa Senators, and it changes how they can play. Like, team speed's fragile. And a couple of bodies who are just marginally faster than the bodies they're replacing. Uh, in this case, it would be, you know, it's not, it's not, I mean, Michaelis isn't faster than Elias Pettersson. But Michaelis sort of taking that spot, and you take, you know, uh, I mean, it's Hoaglander. But nonetheless, like, Michaelis is faster on that third line than a lot of players who, whether it's Roussel or someone else who's played third line minutes, bottom six minutes for the Canucks, Howard Luck over McEwen, what have you. But like, I think their bottom six was faster. I think it helped them keep up with the Maple Leafs. I, I think that was a factor for the Canucks. And I liked the look of it, even though I don't know that the Godette line had their best game in game two of that series. The fourth line was good both games. That was crucial in holding the fort. Like they didn't play a ton but it's crucial to hold the fort with your fourth line, especially against a team that has more offensive depth than you do, which the Maple Leafs you know, clearly qualify by that. Um, and then I also do want to talk about uh, Vertanen. I thought Vertanen had his two best games of the year. I mean, obviously the game that was spotlighted on Hockey Night in Canada. I mean, songs are already being written about it. <laughs> but I liked, I liked, and he, the underlying numbers weren't strong, but I liked the way that he was a factor in the other game without being the guy who was doing loud things. Like he wasn't scoring the goals, but he was pissing everyone off. He was clearly under Austin Matthews, skin a bit. Um, you know, I thought Matthews and Marner were much stronger in the second game. Although Marner made a really bad puck hand, uh, like puck management decision leading to the three, two goal, um, you know, quietly before things went to hell for the Maple Leafs and Morgan Riley made a misplay and a stick broke and on and on. I mean, there was a comedy of errors for the Maple Leafs on that play, but to start that sequence, it was a really bad entry attempt uh, by Mitch Marner. Um, nonetheless, I thought they had a much stronger game in game two. And one of the reasons I think that they were blanked, in, in addition to the fact that Matthews doesn't look fully healthy to me, um, was I like I thought Vertanen was a factor without scoring. And while he's had good games and the ex extended stretches of effective play, I feel like there's not a ton of times I've said 
that or or even been tempted to say that about Vertanen's game. I, I think it's absolutely the right thing to say about his performance on Saturday. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, so Elias Patterson doesn't play those two games against the Leafs. JT Miller slides in the middle, said, went to the coach and told him, I want to be that guy. Uh, and he looked a lot like last year's JT Miller. He did. So whether it was the move to the middle, uh, whether it was just time, whatever the case, uh, an engaged JT Miller is a much better JT Miller than the Canucks have seen for much of this season. But do you have time for this argument, Tom, that the Canucks should stack the middle of the ice with Horvat Pedersen and Miller? And if so, what do you do on the wings? Because it gets awfully thin in a hurry if you're trying to round out a top nine, moving JT Miller to the center position. Yeah, I mean, I've got that psycho PA Islander pretending that I've said <laughs> that JT Miller can't play center. Um, and that's never something I've said. I just want to unequivocally claim that. You, Good luck ever finding the audio of me saying that about JT Miller. I know that JT Miller can play center. I don't think that's where he's going to provide the Canucks with like maximum optimal value. Just because I think you are cooking with a special kind of of chemical agent that has, you know, uh, but what I mean to say is Pedersen and JT Miller have excellent chemistry, are an exceptional fit together, um, just as Besser and Pedersen are. And I, I mean, I don't think you mess with that long term. That's just kind of my view of things. But I mean, Miller made a excellent case for himself. I thought he was phenomenal at in at this in in the center position. And I do think that you know it it gives him the puck more. Like it gives him the puck a little bit more. Um, when he plays in the middle of the ice. And JT Miller with the puck is a good thing. He does great things with it. So I wasn't surprised that he could play in that position at all because I know that JT Miller can be effective there. And I've never said otherwise. Um, but also, uh, you know, I, I did think it worked. Now, do the Canucks have the wing depth to make that work long term, right? Like if you, if Pedersen comes back, are you going to play him with Sutter at right wing, to take some draws maybe and got at at on, on the off wing. Like, what are you going to, I just don't see how you give Pedersen the, the proper weaponry. Do you, do you play Pedersen with Horvat and have Horvat say, take the draws and kind of become like, I have time for that. Actually, I have time for Pedersen Horvat Pearson, but I don't know that I have time for Horvat Pedersen Miller just because I don't know that the Canucks have enough dynamic wings to, give them all a fair shake. And I don't know that you're better off with that than you might be with the lotto line when the lotto line's really cooking. Not that they've really cooked all year, certainly not the way they cooked a year ago, but nonetheless, uh, what they're capable of doing and capable of doing over you know the balance of the season, uh, I still like that fit better ultimately for the Canucks where they're at at the moment. But you know, so long as you have Horvat, Pedersen, and Miller under contract long-term, like fleshing out your wing depth further, um, you know, could make some sense. I mean, that could be a longer-term approach uh, to give you a different look for when things are going wrong or against various opponents or if you're facing a deeper team. Like, I like it as an option, but I like it as an option more than I like it as a default setting, if that makes sense. No, it does. And, you know, obviously in that configuration, you need the Jake Vertanen that's played well these last couple of games, and that's a, a hopers bet, right? And and it means that Gaudet is certainly going to be a winger uh, as he's been for much of the season, and we can debate whether he should have a few more goals or if he's been unlucky, but, you know, the bottom line is uh, he hasn't been terribly productive, and then you've got Sutter moving to the wing again, and that's where some of these issues start to arise uh, because there isn't. There, just, there simply isn't enough wing depth right. for this I just, group. I just suggested, and we sort of walked by it, but I just suggested moving Sutter to the wing to play with Pedersen. It's like, I don't think we need to see that. You know what I, I mean? Like, I, well, I can I tell you, Elias Pedersen, yeah, Pedersen certainly feels that way. <laughs> I, I just, I just don't need to see that. Like, right. uh, you know, now that I, having, having thought back on it, it's like, I really should have, <laughs> we needed like an anvil, <laughs> like an Acme anvil to fall on me mid sentence there, because that's, you know, pull the trap door. Like, no, we, you know what? Experiment over. 
no, this I don't think we need to see this long term. Uh, I had to laugh because, uh, you know, there was a, a little bit of joy here in town over the weekend, and that is going to be the case when the Canucks beat the Leafs. But, you know, you, you, you dropped, and, and rightly so, but, you know, a bucket of cold water on anybody that's thinking that somehow these two wins are a springboard to something more. Because what, what was the end result of two wins against the Leafs? It doubled the Canucks' playoff chances? Yeah, by Dom's model, they doubled their playoff chances and went from three to six percent. And that just that just goes to show you like how much more winning you have to do before you get to a meaningful high leverage game, right? Like the Canucks had a loss to Arizona last year where their playoff odds dipped thirty percent as a result of the loss. You know what I mean? Like like a, a massive shift. Um, that's when you're in the thick of it. That's when you're in a playoff race. Like when every game matters and doesn't just like every game matters, like a thing you say, but like truly things matter and you know, the outcome will fundamentally materially impact your playoff odds. Like to get to the point where the Canucks playoff odds swing, they have to do an incredible job going forward. Like someone had said to me, well, if they go seven and three over their next 10, you're going to be surprised by how close they are to the playoffs. And it's like that would leave them with 38 points in 38 games. And, you know, Dom's model at the moment projects 65 as the playoff bar. I know ineffective math, uh, you know, uh, Bruce uh, Mika McCurdy's, his model calls for 62. So somewhere between 62 and 65 um, points from there on. So if they're at 38 points with 38 games to get to 65, you need 17 more points or sorry, 27 more points and you're remaining 16. Right. Like that's that's a huge ask, J-Pat. That's, I mean, what, that you have to win, like 12 gets you 24, 3, like, you, you know, the well, math said it, is Tom, so I mean, the long. math was there. At, with 30 games to go, they had to go 21 and 9, essentially, to get to 62 points. Right. So, you know, they had to play 700 hockey. The games against the Leafs are the first time they've strung back-to-back wins together in a month. Like, that should just kind of frame it. And really, like, well, 62- to get to 63, to get to 63 from here, it's 120 point pace, like president's trophy pace the rest of the way. And, you know, one thing, one thing we should note, right, is like the Canucks were better. I mean, we said it on this podcast last week, like in the depths of this team's struggles, we said this team is not a peer with the Ottawa Senators and the Detroit Red Wings, regardless of how it looks in the standings right now. Um, you know, I think they're showing us that, but, you know, this wasn't a team that could afford to do what it did in January and February, right? Because now to get to the level, like the Canucks are probably on true talent, a competitive team in the North Division playoff race. They should be a team that's at least in with a prayer until late in the season in this division. But when you play as badly as the Canucks played for six weeks, you then have to play like one of the best teams in hockey just to find your actual level. And even if we go back, like, let's go back a month, go back to March 7th. Um, If you look at the Canucks five on five performance by expected goals, by shot differential, by, you know, shot attempt differential, whatever, like, you know, they're like 15th in the NHL, 14th in the NHL, like, you know, way better. They've stabilized their five on five game over the last month. And that's great. But, you know, even if those trends continue, there's no evidence there of a team that's poised to go on a 120 point pace. Uh, run over the latter 28 games and propel themselves into the mid 60s and into the thick of the North Division playoff race. Like they really have to go on an insane, you know, run here before we can even be like they have a shot. Uh, at the moment, they don't. And anyone who's sort of pointing to like, oh, they're four points out. Yeah, four points behind a team that has five games in hand. Like five games in hand, they could win the next two against the Montreal Canadiens, the team they're chasing, and they'd be tied with them. In points with five games in hand. <laughs> like, that's wild, man. The math on this is so grim. And so you got to take your joy when you can find it. And, you know, two wins against the Maple Leafs, uh, that does fit the bill at the end of the day. Yeah. And just to give people a sense if they haven't looked too far ahead here, like all those games that the Canucks have played ahead of teams, these games in hand that their opponents have on them. A lot of them will be made up at the end of the month. Like, the Canucks have the Habs in town for two. They round out the homestand with one against Edmonton. Then they go out on the road. They play Ottawa twice, Montreal twice, come home for two against Winnipeg. That takes them up to March 24th. And then they have a full week off. 
They don't play again until March 31st against Calgary. So, you know, seven full days between games, that's going to allow all those teams around them to make up some of the games in hand. They're going to play each other. The problem when teams that they're trying to catch are playing each other, somebody's winning. And there's a good chance that some of those games go to overtime or shootout, and then there's three points exchanged. And that's just the difficulty when you are the trailing team of trying to make up ground on opponents that you're trying to reel in. And so, really, it'll take until the end of this month to have a much better sense, a truer sense, when you look at the standings of, you know, what the gap is for the Vancouver Canucks. Now, all they can control is the way that they're playing. And if they play uh, like they did on the weekend against Toronto... You know, that's a team that this fan base, I think, can get behind. When you think of the angst in the market on Friday after Jim's comments, and I don't know about you, because you left the podcast and then you went and wrote a column on top of that. Like, you must have been exhausted mentally at the end of Friday, just with all... Because, look, I I think the the podcast was well-received, right? We got a lot of positive feedback on... Just calling it the way that we saw it and felt it on Friday, and I think our views you know, represented the views of a, a lot of frustrated fans in this market, but then you laid it all out in print as well. And I saw the comments had gone off the charts on, uh, on the athletic app as well. So ton of feedback there, but, uh, yeah, man, you put in, uh, you put in the work on Friday. Yeah. And I was exhausted just by the comments, right? Like that's the, <laughs> I was exhausted before we went to work. Um, you know, the, the thing, it's, it's just a, it's just a tough situation because I just, like, I don't know if people know this about me, but I hope they do. And that's that I'm not temperamentally negative as the way I view things. Like, I, I tend to try and empathize and see things from, you know, both angles or all angles. Um, you know, I think anyone who's read my work, you know, for long enough knows that, like, I try and give credit where, where it's due. I try and criticize where it's due. I'm, I'm not someone who's always come down on one side or the other, right? Like I'm the guy who thought the speculation about Jim Benning's job security seven games into the season was silly. And I'm also the guy who wrote the column that I wrote on Friday. And, you know, I think that's sort of, I'm, I'm happy to take it from all sides because I just kind of see things that way. Like I'm, I, I'm, you know, not an arbiter of like what, what the middle is, but I just am kind of down the road in terms of my temperament. And so you know, I write this column and, and I'm, I'm taking some shots from people who are like, oh, you're too negative or, you know, this classic like Neil McRae shit. And it's like, what? <laughs> I, I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry to tell you this, but that is not my spiritual forebearer. You know, <laughs> like that is not that is not what's going on here. Um, I just don't see a ton of reasons for long term positivity about the way that this club has been run and conducted themselves through this pandemic. I mean, I think that Jim Benning has been put in a tough spot in a lot of ways. Like, I don't think that this is all on him um, by any means, but I also don't think he's been, you know, the solution miscast as the problem because of the resources been cut, being cut and on and on. Like, I think there are significant issues, uh, especially in terms of salary cap allocation that have caused the Canucks to be in the spot where it's going to be a delicate dance just to not waste the prime years of some of the best collection of young talent that we've ever seen in this market. And, you know, that's like, that has to be frustrating for me anyway, just like looking at it and trying to call it like I, like it is, or like I see it anyway. Um, I just don't see how anyone could look at that and say like, that's acceptable or that's something we can, you know, call as anything other than what it is, which is, you know, it's, it's mediocre at best. And you know, I'm I'm not in the business of praising what I see as mediocre personally. So anyway, that's just my, my overall take on it. I think the good news from, uh, you know, the, the perspective of a Vancouver fan anyway, is that this team is going to do better uh, over the over the balance of this season. And, you know, I, I do think it's like Jim can't come out and say it on Friday, right? He can't come out and wave a white flag by any no, means. No, no. But, and, and But no one's asking him to, right? Like, the headline that you're going for, I think, is the GM in that position is, like, defiant, um, you know, Jim Benning challenges team. You know, like, that's kind of, like, your optimal headline. You're, you're not going to come out with, like, uh, rose-colored sort of storylines out of that availability by any means. But 
that's sort of what you're going for. And, you know, as, as we listened and, and heard about the priorities and, you know, it, it all just felt sort of passive and, and just wasn't close to good enough in terms of the plans elaborated. And, and that's what I was reacting to in the column. That's what we reacted to on the podcast. And, um, you know, I, I think that's fair. Like, I think it's all fair. And I think it's plain to see. Like, I actually think it's obvious at this point. And we can't pretend otherwise, right? You look at this team's books. Like, this team has the most expensive guy buried in the American League in, in Sven Berchi, in the entire NHL. Like, you know, uh, he's the only guy over $3 million cap hit who's buried in the American League. There's one other guy in, in Greg Patteron who's like 255. Two, and then there's another guy in Jordan Wheel who's over a million. But it's like these are pretty it's pretty rare for a guy to be buried in the American League this season in the NHL with a significant one-way cap hit. Uh, Sven Berge has the largest. Uh, Louis Erickson's the only guy at six million or above on a taxi squad as it stands at, at the time of this recording. Um, you know, and then and then with the good work that Rick Dollywall did mining on, 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 you know, uncovering that Jordy Ben has a five team, no trade clause, a, a cursory, no trade clause, right? Like that's not something that's going to stop you from making a deal or anything, but the Canucks have 11 contracts on the books, JPAT that are yeah, NMC know. or NTC of some variety. And I, I mean, I cross-referenced it with all the teams based on cap friendly and um, you know, that's the most like that's the most in hockey. Toronto has 10 St. Louis has 10. That's it. Like, that's the most. And St. Louis and Toronto, like, those teams are conducting themselves with a completely different level of ambition this season, which explains in part why their contracts are structured that way. It's tough to figure out why Vancouver's are, especially when, like, it's not like there's a ton of, like, hometown discounts or value, like, positive values there, um, surplus values there that the team is benefiting from. Uh, it's just kind of, it's kind of tough to swallow. And, and especially in the context that, you know, this market heard for five years about how, you know, limiting no trade clauses were to the, this rebuild in the first place. And now, like this team's here, bottom 10 by point percentage. I don't think, I, like maybe they'll get out of that, but I think that's kind of their level. Like I think at this point, if the Canucks end up, they'll probably end up like the 21st, 20th place team in hockey, something like that at the end, at season's end. Um, to have that team with this many contracts that are like really tough to move, and, and all of them have some variety of no move or no trade. Like, not all of them, but 11 of them. Like, m- almost half your 23-man roster. I, I just don't... I can't I can't look at that and be doing our listeners or my readers or athletic subscribers a, a service by saying, like, and things will be brighter next year. You know? Like, I can't. I can't. I, I won't. And, uh, and so, you know, we covered it as we covered it on Friday. And, and I look, I think we did good work. Absolutely. And and if people haven't checked out your accompanying column, I would say it still stands. Go and have a, a look. But uh, I'm guessing that many of the VIPs uh, have seen that in addition to uh, what we laid down on Friday here on the VanCast. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, so Saturday's win over the Leafs brought the Canucks to the midway mark. 11, 15, and 2. Not good enough. Not nearly good enough, but... Uh, they do have a second half of a season here to try to improve. And, and as we've said, the last 11 games, they're over 500, 5, 4, and 2. And the underlying numbers have been a whole lot better. So uh, there has been some progress. Uh, but that month of February, in the end, is probably going to do be what, what has done them in. Uh, I went on Rob Fay's show post-game on Saturday and laid out my uh, my midterm award winners. Wait, 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 wait. Get the plug in in full. The Nation. The Nation, yeah. The Nation, Rob Fay. The show. Nation okay. with Rob Fay. I'm a regular so contributor now post game. It's been fun. <laughs> show looks good. Um, looks I'm going to be, yeah, I'm going to be on there again tonight. So uh, we'll break Twice. down the, the Canucks and the Habs. Uh, and then I'm going to come to the rink on Wednesday. Why, why, I guess Wednesday's the national window. Like Wednesday's an eight o'clock local time face off. Oh, really? Lovely. Yeah. Love it. Not for people um, in Montreal. They're not going to love that. But, no, no, but, of course. But uh, I like it. I've, I mean, that's late. It's really late. I know that's old school. Eight? Like the Canucks, 
I remember West Coast. The, I know. I remember going to the Coliseum like when I was a kid. Eight o'clock was the norm, like way back when. But uh, yeah, anyways, eight o'clock uh, oh, local time I hate start. That. <laughs> I hate that. I hate that. I hate that as an as like like I hate that not not as a reporter. I mean, it's fine. I don't care. But I hate that as a um. What <laughs> I do, I, I hate that as a. Like a f- thinking about it from my my former role, like as a PR guy, like that extra hour waiting around. Like I used to loathe a seven thirty start. Like a seven thirty start was like fuck this. Right. <laughs> I hated it. That extra half hour in the hallway, just like. Oh well, we talked about um, like and and most of those Alberta games on Hockey Night are eight local time, and you and I have both covered oh. enough there. Like that, that that one hour, like it just feels like the game is never going to get there. Like you're just sitting in your hotel room, spinning your wheels. Thinking like, oh my god, it's like three o'clock, and I, you know, I don't even have to be at the rink till like six or whatever. Like, yeah, I know what I wouldn't do to have that type of frustration, though. Right? Like, what I wouldn't <laughs> do for being like, oh, an eight o'clock start on the road. I hear you. Like, oh. I know people don't want like. I would kill. People don't want to hear us drive. We get to go to the game. So. <laughs> uh, but also I, now it's just like you know, I, I mean, as opposed to covering a road game in my sweatpants from my couch. Um, you know, while feeding my dog a bully stick, it's just like <laughs> I would kill. I would kill to be on the road, being like, "Oh, this late start. It's so inconvenient. I'm not going to make last call." Like, All right, I would so, love that. <laughs> so put me in my place. You like to do that to, on occasion, and I know how much work you put in to the year-end NHL awards as uh, a member of the mm. professional hockey writers. You, yeah, and, and I'm a member now for the first time, so I'm looking forward to, to casting uh, votes as well. But on Rob's show, I just ran down my four picks for. The Canucks year-end awards, but at the midterm. So Besser is the MVP. I don't think there's much debate about that, and I think he kind of sealed nope. that on on Saturday night. Oh, he's been unbelievable. I've been I've been having a debate with myself. I'm curious to get your take on this. I've been having a debate with myself about whether or not Brock Besser's foot speed is genuinely better this year, or if he's just always in the right position, and so it looks like he's faster. I'm not sure. I, I'm 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 honestly debating it with myself. I think there's a hop there. I, I I do think that he's picked up the pace. We've seen him win foot races for pucks that, you know, he just generally didn't do in his first three seasons in the National Hockey League. I I think he's got a step. And and you know we we I mean so much in this market about Bo Horvat learning to sort of you know improve his skating once he got to the NHL. I don't know if some of that's rubbed off on Brock, but I do think. I mean, look, maybe it is some of it's positional, but I think that there is something there that he looks a little faster and maybe it's a little fitter. I don't know. Whatever the case. Uh, Brock Besser has been the team's MVP. And I and I said earlier, I think Thatcher Demko could make a push if he can play the second half like he has the last couple of weeks. Uh, these are just the midterms. I'm not suggesting these are going to be the winners when they hand out awards at the end of the year. Uh, I went with Nate Schmidt as my top defenseman. I took some heat online. Uh, again, I, I still think people, and we've discussed this on previous pods, when you look at the defense as a whole, I mean, it wasn't good for the first 15 games. It would have been hard to pick a top defender out of the first 15 games. But, you know, Nate Schmidt has a positive shot and goal differential, uh, playing more than 20 minutes a night, and has taken one penalty. When you think how much time the Canucks have spent defending this year, and you think of the parade to the penalty box others have taken, we know the issues that Quinn Hughes has had. I think Quinn Hughes will win the award at the end of the season, but I think at the midway mark, Nate Schmidt, is my guy is their top defenseman. And, you know, you had said it earlier, and we're starting to see it. Like, you know, picking up some points now, too. He's up to nine points at the midway mark, which isn't going to blow anybody away. But, you know, it kind of puts him on that 30-point pace for an 82-game season. Yeah, and for a guy who's getting no benefit from the um, power play, right? Like, his yep. points are not coming yep. at all on the power play. But here's, here's, the, here's the thing you need to know about Nate Schmidt. Nate Schmidt is... Uh, when Nate Schmidt is on the ice, the Canucks have scored 21 goals um, and permitted 17, right? Like that's Nate Schmidt on the ice, the Canucks outscore their opponents. And as a team at five on five, the Canucks do not outscore their opponents, typically speaking. In fact, as a team, they are minus nine on the season in five on five situations by goal differential. Um, the only other, like, really regular, like, uh, you know, not, not only Olevi, because uh, he hasn't played enough, in my view, to, to qualify. He's only played, what, 205 on five minutes or something? But the only guy who's, like, up there in terms of, you know, log 250-plus five on five minutes who's got a – who's in the black at all by goal differential among Canucks defenders is Jordy Bett. Um, 
and Jordy Benz played 200 fewer minutes than Nate Schmidt. So Nate Schmidt is the Canucks defender who is helping them outscore their opponents. There is no other peer. And if you care about winning, that's the stat you need to know that should seal the deal for Nate Schmidt as the Babe Pratt Trophy Award winner. And I'm glad you brought up Jordy Ben. I'm glad because Jordy Ben was my unsung hero. And and this is a guy that, you know, I wasn't sure what his future was with the Vancouver Canucks. He couldn't get into the lineup second half last year. uh, Started the season in COVID protocol. uh, Didn't play the first bunch of games because Hamannick was here and then Hamannick got hurt. He's been an every night guy. Solidified the penalty kill when he got back into the lineup. He's picked up six points too, which, you know, I'm not looking for Jordy Ben to generate a ton of offense, but there's been uh, an offensive contribution from Jordy Ben as well. And so, you know, it's usually Tyler Mott's award, but Mott hasn't played enough with the injury. Uh, I've got Jordy Ben as my unsung hero of the first half of the season. Yeah, Jordy Ben, um, Tanner Pearson. I have some time for Tanner Pearson as another sort of finalist, I guess. But I think you've picked the right guy. I think it is Jordy Ben. And, um, you know, I think the only other real contenders would be, what, Brandon Sutter and Tanner Pearson. Um, And, yeah, I prefer Ben to those two. Uh, but look, Tanner Pearson, I, I just want to note this, especially as trade speculation uh, rages. And, you know, as I wrote that it should be a no-brainer to deal him on Friday at the deadline, something I still believe, by the way, uh, that doesn't change the fact that, like, quietly, even when the production isn't there, right? Like, what's he on pace for 28, 29 points this season, right? Like, the production hasn't been there this year like it has been in past years. But Tanner Pearson remains like a very, very good player in extremely difficult minutes, uh, who's played very well, um, solid, reliable, low maintenance, zero maintenance, in fact. Uh, I think from the organization's perspective, Tanner Pearson would be my other candidate for that. All right, and Hoaglander is the most exciting player, and I don't think there's much doubt about that if it's a fan vote, as nope. the, the awards usually are. No, I, the, uh, there's also yeah. no doubt about that objectively, right? Objectively. Well, I- if you like goal scoring, Brock Besser's had a pretty exciting first half of the season, and sure, Quinn Hughes sure. makes things exciting too. But just in terms of you know a guy that nobody really knew what to expect, we saw the YouTube videos, uh, we knew it was in there. But this is the NHL we're talking about, and from day one of training camp, this guy has entertained. He's excited, uh, hasn't looked out of place, and I love the fact like he knew, he knew that he had scored on Freddie Anderson, right? Like the the whistle didn't go, the referees weren't sure. Uh, Hoaglander had no doubt that he had gone back bar and out. And sure enough, uh, there he goes. He gets his fifth of the season at the midway mark. So, you know, tracking for a double-digit rookie season in these most unusual of circumstances, uh, all of that rolls up into, I don't think there's much doubt that Nils Hoaglander is going to be the most exciting Canuck uh, when they hand out that award at the end of the year. And that's the Pavel Bure, right? That's the Pavel Bure award, right? So that's the one that matters the most. (laughs) <laughs> but uh but the uh the other thing to note is Niels Hoaglander the, again the production what it's 11 11 points right yeah. so yeah. i mean it's not the uh-huh. it's not like not jumping off the page but in terms of what the Canucks generate with Hoaglander on the ice like Niels Hoaglander's ability to drive offensive chances scoring chances uh, expected goals um whether or not it's resulted in goals yet to this point, it's going to over the length of his career if he can keep this up. And I say he can because there's nothing about the way that this guy wins battles and, you know, just that constant effort level that suggests to me that this is a flash in the pan. Like, this guy's going to do this. He's going to do this for a long time. He's going to be the type of guy who adds, like, nitrous to the engine of a middle six Canucks line for an awful long time and for the next two seasons beyond this year at a, at a cost-controlled entry-level cap hit. Uh, that's going to be exceedingly valuable for this Canucks team, you know, this year and for the near future. Uh, truly, truly a remarkable rookie season. Did you see that one guy who claimed that he's a Hogamaniac? There's a guy <laughs> on my Twitter feed. He said that Nils Hoaglander should win the Calder Trophy because he's a Hogamaniac. Um, which I loved, by the way. Like I was just like all like I've completely written the lyrics to a song, um, just in my head for fun. But Kirill Kaprizov and Kevin Lankinen, I think, are going to be able to edge him out. But I honestly do think Niels Hoaglander at the halfway point of the Canucks season, if not everyone else's, um, I think Niels Hoaglander should be a finalist. At the moment, he'd be in my top three. And as I've gone through with the Canucks, the team I primarily cover at midseason, I've done my own sort of. Um, you know, midway point awards consideration. And while a lot of teams aren't at the midway point, you know, nonetheless, I've sort of just taken stock out of, of it habitually. And for me, Hoaglander should very much be the Canucks' 
fourth consecutive Calder Trophy nominee. That's an insane run from the scouting staff, and and that should be noted too. You know, in 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 concert with all the the negativity that we have about the direction of this franchise, warranted negativity. Well, and and I like Hoaglander for a lot of reasons, including the fact that at the midway mark, he's got five. Uh, You had him pegged for seven. I can't believe. Like, you just dumped all over the guy when we did our our preseason predictions. Did I? Seven. I had him for nine. So What's he at? He's at five. Okay. So, I mean... I'm not, doesn't seem like I'm, I might not be far off, but look, here's what I'll say about, here's what I'll say. Here's what I'll say. Um, Niels Hoaglander has wildly, wildly exceeded my expectations. Sure. Wild. We can agree on like, that. Like, I Absolutely. cannot, I cannot understate the extent to which, like, I'm always skeptical of young players, especially young players with his type of profile, like not a point per game guy in the SHL in the, this fall. Um, you know, that, uh, not that I don't think they can contribute, just that I don't expect them to come in and be plus top six contributors who drive play or drive offense, at least at an elite rate. Like that is not what I expected from Niels Hoaglander. Uh, he's been exceeding my expectations from the very first day of training camp. I think that's true for the organization and for this entire city. Um, and, and good on him. I mean, truly, truly good on him. Uh, it's been a great run for him. Hey, before we, I, I suspect we're winding down, right? And yes. before we do so, I do just want to quickly talk about um, one guy who we talked about. Like, I, I don't think this is a secret. I'm not saying like this guy's unsung or you know <laughs> this guy needs to get more credit than he's got because I think everyone's aware of what he's done and how good he's been. But I do just want to quickly take a sec and talk about what Thatcher Demko is doing at a, at a little bit greater length because sure. he's been outrageously good, like outrageously good. And especially going back over the past month, like over the past month, Thatcher Demko has saved 5.77 goals, um, like goals saved above average. So, <laughs> you know, factoring the quality of looks that he's, he's getting, um, only Vasilevsky, Marc-Andre Fleury, and Varlamov have been better over the past month. So dating back to March 7th. Um, that's wildly good. That's some pretty and good company. Pretty good company. I mean, that's basically that's basically the Vesna leaders <laughs> and, and Thatcher Demko. Um, pretty good. And then among goaltenders who've played at least five games over that stretch, uh, there's only five who have a better save percentage over his last nine starts, a 9-3-1. For Thatcher Demko, uh, you know, because of the way the season started in the Canucks net, I think, you know, people look at his numbers and think, no, 9, 913 or 911 or oh, he's moving up. He's uh, he's up to 913, which is still like slightly below average. But the run that this young goaltender is on right now needs a little bit more credit, I think, especially because when you look at it, you know, over a relatively large length of time, a length of time during which he's been Vancouver's most frequent starter and sort of seized the number one goaltending mantle, like a 9-3-1, and he's the fourth best goaltender once the quality of the shots that he's facing are are factored in. Um, pretty incredible stuff from Thatcher Demko. And, you know, a big reason, like, Look, I don't think the Canucks are going to ha- have any realistic shot of making the playoffs, but if you want to do the oh the 2019 Blues thing, like if you're if you if that's the way you want to support your team and and I never criticize how a fan wants to support your team, if you want to hang on to some hope in enjoying the rest of the season and and sort of cling to that, one thing that the Canucks do have that sort of matches what the Blues did is they have a young goaltender who's never really done this before who is getting red hot right now. Thatcher Demko, extraordinarily hot. Like, hotter than the seat at Buckingham Palace following uh, Meghan and <laughs> Prince Harry's interview with Oprah. Um, you know, hotter than Lolo Bunny. Uh, Thatcher Demko, he's feeling it. Yeah, and, you know, I, I, you had the last nine games. I think I did the numbers last night. In his last eight starts, he's got a 190 goals against average and a 93.6 save percentage with a shutout. And somehow through that, the team is only four, three and one. Like he deserves better in terms of wins and losses. He's done his part. You think back to the two, nothing loss to the jets where he allowed one goal and the team just couldn't score for him that night. But you know, he held it at one, nothing for the longest time until Winnipeg scored an empty netter. So 
Uh, no, that, it, it, look, that's a, it's a good sign for him. Uh, it's a contract year for him as well, so if he continues to pay to play like this, he's going to get paid, but that's a good problem to have because he is looking like the guy that we saw uh, in the playoffs. I, I hate the name Bubble Demko. I, I, I can't even no, believe I know. those words just that. came off my... Just move past it. Yes, and I'm, I didn't even want to use those words, but I did. But I don't <laughs> like them, and you won't hear me use them again here uh, on the podcast. Uh, it's the Canucks and the Habs. It's a game day here in Montreal, uh, and we'll see how the Canucks uh, go about trying to keep Tyler Toffoli in check, and that'll give us lots of material uh, as we move forward here throughout the week, Monday and Wednesday games against the Montreal Canadiens. Other pot options for you here at The Athletic. The Bob Father, Bob McKenzie. We don't hear from him as much in his semi-retirement. Uh, Bob McKenzie joins Scott Burnside and Pierre Lebrun on Two Man Advantage on The Athletic Hockey Show coming up Wednesday here on The Athletic app. Uh, don't forget, check out our comment section for each podcast episode of The Athletic app. Rate and subscribe to the VanCast on Apple. And if you're not already a subscriber, what are you waiting for? Go to theathletic.com slash VanCast and receive a subscription for just $3.99 per month. Back-to-back wins over the Toronto Maple Leafs, trying to make it three in a row when the Canucks face the Habs. Uh, that's going to do it for this edition of the VanCast. For Drancer, it's J-Pat. Thanks so much. As always, we'll catch up with you again two more episodes this week as we've gone to three a week now so make sure you're looking for fresh new local content throughout the week here at the athletic and the athletic.com As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.